Here's a little fun fact. Did you know that for over five years, I taught thousands of people at hundreds of different events, both in person and online, how to grow their businesses. And I did this for Google. And now I want to do it for you. I'm offering up some special complimentary coaching opportunities for a few lucky wise squirrels. Visit wisequirrels.com slash coaching. Welcome to Wise Squirrels, the podcast for late diagnosed adults with ADHD. I'm your host, Dave Delaney. As a quick reminder, Why Squirrels provides general information and it's not medical advice. The host, that's me, and producers are not liable for any actions taken based on the content you hear. Always consult a healthcare professional for any personalized guidance. Our guest today is Daniela Caridi, PhD, CPC. She's a certified professional coach and the visionary founder of ADHD Time. It's a company dedicated to helping individuals, both children and adults, unleash their true potential for success. And with her profound expertise in time and money management, organization, impulsivity, and goal setting, Dr. Caridi has empowered countless individuals to overcome their challenges and thrive. Her impressive academic background, including a doctorate in communication disorders from Northwestern University and a master's degree in learning disabilities from the University of Haifa, Israel, makes her a true authority in her field. And I apologize. Let me try it. Haifa. I'm trying to get better. <laughs> Today, Dr. Karidi shares her personal journey, invaluable insights and tips about retirement planning, end of life. She shares powerful strategies for enhancing social connections from navigating rejection to understanding ADHD's impact on relationships. I began by asking Daniela whether she has noticed an increase in late diagnosed adults with ADHD in the field. I'm finding a lot more than when I started in the field. So when I was doing my PhD uh, in the early 2000s, um, I was comparing um, adults with ADHD to older adults without ADHD. Um, and it was very hard to, to even consider looking at um, adults above 55 mm. um, or late diagnosis because there weren't going to be enough numbers. Um, so it wasn't even a category in my research. Um, today, just from the amount that I meet in conferences and events or the amount of clients that I get, um, I can tell you that that population significantly increased. Mm. I think it's amazing. I yeah. think that late diagnosis is um, um, really important. I think there is no too, too late of an age. Um, I actually worked with um, an individual that is 71 and has been diagnosed last year. Oh wow, wow. And what was what what was the uh that experience like for that person? And what what led them, you know, without naming names of course, but yes. what what led them to be become be diagnosed? So, um I give a free workshop every 2 months that focuses on how grandparents can help their grandchildren with ADHD, mm. how or extended family can support um family members with ADHD. Um and someone sent it to him. 
and he participated and he kept on saying that everything I'm talking about, their child, their grandchild is them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they reached out and said, you know, do you, I recommend anyone to diagnose? And I referred them to someone. And then after being diagnosed, they wanted to find ways to enjoy their retirement. Mm. Um, retiring with ADHD is a challenge. <laughs> and I have a lot of clients that come from that world. Yeah. What are some of those challenges as, you know, for retiring with ADHD? And also, you know, I, I, I do want to talk today with uh, with you about end of life and preparation there because I know that's that's uh, an area that you focus on so what are some of those challenges as we get into retirement we know that one of the symptoms for ADHD um, is executive function challenges hmm. and executive function relates to organizing planning managing um, and it comes to life for every individual in a different way one person can be um, time blind. Um, while another person can be um, disorganized in space. Mm. Um, some individuals have challenges in uh, managing their finances, others in relationship, and some in all of the above. Mm. When we um, have a big life transition, if it's from college to work, from work to another position, um, or even um, getting married or having the kids leave to college, all those transitions affect our hacks, habits, strategies to overcome our executive function challenges. So maybe when you were working, um, you were so busy and you had a structure that now that you're retired, that lack of structure means that you're not succeeding to achieve the things you want to succeed during retirement. Mm. Um, also, retirement means that many times your social structure also changes. Um, people that you would meet at work are no longer maybe in your life um, in a daily basis. And for an adult with ADHD, m- making those connections again, being proactive in your social life after a while, several years where social life was built into your work environment um, becomes a challenge. Mm-hmm. I also find that some adults with ADHD want to do too much and find that they get this paralysis of decision making. Well, I want to go on vacation, but I also want to go see my kids and I also grandkids and I also want to um, stay at home and read a book. So as a result, I just do nothing because I have too many decisions to make. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and and that is true for pe- for people in different life um, points. But when you are retired, it becomes um, even more of a challenge because you don't have the time confinement and restrictions that made you make decisions in a more speedy manner. So, sort of analysis paralysis uh, kind of right. thing, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then and then you also have the um, budget management challenges and. The end of life planning challenges, and I will never forget the medical challenges. We know statistically that individuals with ADHD have more medical challenges for a variety of reasons. And if you're also elderly or older, um, that adds another component to the equation. Just managing all your appointments and um, all your medical components of your life as an older adult um, when you add ADHD to the equation, um, it becomes more challenging. Interesting. So you you were mentioned some of the health problems or challenges as you get older with for folks with ADHD. Are there challenges beyond 
you know, well, I, I suppose insurance and all that things, all those things, you know, God bless America. But, <laughs> um, but are there specific health challenges as you get older that are, that are directly so, related to ADHD? So some of it is related to the lack of knowledge of our medical professionals. Um, and I'm generalizing here. Mm. There are out there amazing medical professionals, but at the same time, there is a high percentage of um, heart doctors, psychiatrists, and nurses, um, clinicians from the variety that don't understand thoroughly ADHD, many times provide wrong information. Like um, I had a client that his heart doctor told him he has to go off his ADHD meds um, after being on them for 20-something years because mm. he was adding um, heart medication. That is true for some cases. It's not true for all cases. Um, so we have a combined issue. One is the lack of information of professionals that relate to ADHD, but we also have a lack of research. When you look at all the, a lot of these research studies about medication, they're capped at age 55. They're, um, mm -hmm. So the doctors sometimes are not knowledgeable because there is no data out there. So they're not, sometimes they're doing it because they're not informed and other times because there is no information. Um, there is also a lack of individuals that want to diagnose at older age or are willing to differentiate between a memory disorder and um, ADHD. That is a big issue that has been addressed lately a little bit more in the field, but definitely needs more professionals and more research. And then the third component is just the executive function challenges of managing your own health. I know personally how hard it is to keep on keep track of my own appointments and add to that job challenges of managing the insurance and managing several medical conditions. Um, the ADHD kind of pops his, its head and, and has a negative effect. And again, these are all generalized statements. Everything I'm saying is kind of putting everyone in the same boat, mm. although we're not all in the same boat. Some of us have a yacht and some of, have, some of us have a kayak, but, <laughs> but, but, we're, but we're all floating in the water. So what I'm using here are all examples that in general fit a big group of people, but individually, if you meet an adult with ADHD, you met one adult with ADHD. Oh, that, yeah, that's a great point to, to, for everybody listening is, yeah, it's, it's different for different people. All right. What are some of the lesser known commonalities between those with ADHD? I mean, I know, I mean, we, we know it's right there in the acronym. What are some other similarities? Um, well, we have a joke that's not a real joke that when you walk in a room and there's a bunch of people, you can find your soulmate, that other one with the attention disorder. Um, I think that individuals with ADHD have uh, some characters that um, relate to the executive functions, as I said before, which is planning, organizing, time management, um, thinking forward to the future, this um, perfectionism many times. But no one with ADHD has all of them. And, and your life experiences will affect how these come out. Um, hyperactivity when you're a child could look like running around or walking a lot. And when you're an adult could look like, you know, shaking your leg, um, could look like an internal feeling of hyperness, even if externally you can sit very nicely. Mm. Um, a lot of the symptoms relate to 
not looking properly towards the future or not having a realistic view of time or not having a realistic view of managing stuff. I'll also add that ADHD is very comorbid, which means it goes together with a lot of other conditions. Um, so learning disability is one of the common conditions that go with ADHD, but also anxiety and depression. Mm. Um, and, and we, um, definitely add to that, um, autism or is, is now being commonly perceived as something that could be with ADHD in the past. It was perceived as those things cannot go together. Mm. Um, and today we know that that's wrong. Um, we also find um, adults with ADHD that have OCD. And then I have a friend that always says, wait, but I thought ADHDs are disorganized people. Um, so comorbidity works like that. It, 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 it sits sometimes on the opposites of the same mm -hmm. problem. <laughs> and it doesn't always fit our stereotypes. Yeah, I, you made a point a while ago that that has stood out to me in my mind, which is, you know, I know the, uh, the I've done my own research into studies, not my own research, but in you know into the studies of around loneliness, which is something I was feeling quite a lot, especially during the pandemic, and I believe there's a study that found that uh, you know it's something to the effect of paraphrasing here, but about like it's like the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's kind of the health, the health ramifications that are caused by loneliness. And there's a book that I really enjoyed called Blue Zones. Yep. Uh, by, uh, Dan Butner. And, and in Blue Zones, he talks about, you know, these different areas, different countries or, or regions of countries where people live the longest and the healthiest as well. Um, and, he, he studied these regions and found commonalities between them. And, and one of those commonalities was having a strong social circle. And so getting to your point about, you know, for folks that are getting older and retiring and are losing that connection to friends at work, um, are there strategies that you share for folks in retirement or, or, you know, approaching those years to reconnect or to find more folks to connect with? Definitely. Um, I think when we think about um, retirement, um, we many times imagine this lonely guy fishing or someone on a boat by themselves. And really, what we should be thinking about retirement is actually a bunch of people playing cards together mm. or a group at church or volunteering with other people at a soup kitchen we should be thinking about the social interactions that are meaningful to the individual. So one of the exercises I do with clients is I ask them to write all the places where they think they can meet at least one person in their life at the moment. Mm. If, it, if it's um, when they go to the doctor's office or if it's the church or the synagogue or um, if they are a gardener at the gardening shop, so it's creating lists of places, and then we think about groups that interact in those places. So I have worked with um, a mom that is actually not retired, but her kids left to college, mm. and she is an empty nester, and she feels this loneliness that comes from losing that group of parents that she used to meet with her kids at pick up and drop off. Mm. Um, she works at home, which is now more and more common. 
Um, and she is missing that routine and that com- group of friends. And we were talking about other ways to bring that social back into one's life. I think what I'm trying to say is it has to be a goal, a proactive activity in any stage of our life. But there are transition points where we even have to be more proactive to overcome the loneliness and the aloneness that we feel. Yeah, that's interesting. I It's funny because I, I co-founded or I founded two monthly networking events uh, here in Nashville that I ran for years and also co-founded two uh, kind of free community conferences kind of thing. And I always love to be the, the in the center. Like I always love meeting lots of people. Now I'm very extroverted. So that feeds into my personality. But, you know, but what I realized years later is I don't have many deep connections. And uh, it's only now after being diagnosed with ADHD myself where I realize so much of of my experiences uh, are directly related from, from ADHD. So, so for example, like, uh, you know, decision fatigue, like trying to decide on what group I should join or what networking event I should attend and, and then not doing any. Right. (laughs) And, and also that we have a component of um, fear of rejection. Um, I think, Everyone has it, but ADHDers have a higher sensitivity and fear of rejection. And that adds to the difficulty of making meaningful long-term relationships Mm. and even starting something new. Um, I will give an example from my own life because that way I'm not exposing any clients. Um, I submitted to present at a conference. I submitted to two components of a conference and I got accepted only to one component. Everyone got accepted to only one. It says it clearly in the email that they decided no one gets to present in two parts of the conference. But I felt rejected for not getting accepted to part A. Mm. No real good reason they (laughs) chose my presentation. I am still going to be presenting at the conference but I still felt this strong feeling of rejection um, because I only got one of what I applied to. It wasn't logical. And when I talked with neurotypical individuals, they don't have as much that experience. They still may feel rejection, but, but not um, in many, as many points of the time that I find myself feeling it. That's um, interesting, yeah. So what, and what I've been hearing from other individuals with ADHD and from some of the research is that it partially relates to the fact that, yes, we might have had more rejections, which is possibly true. So um, that's one component. The other component is that negative, negative events tend to stay stronger in our memory. Um, if we have memory challenges, which is one of the symptoms of ADHD, um, what we find in research again and again with a lot of populations, anxiety, depression, ADHD, even dementia and Alzheimer's, that negative effects tend to stick to negative events stick to our memory more. Um, so if you experience more negative effects and negative effects stick to your memory more, it makes logical that you will project and perceive things more negatively in the future. 
Oh, that's interesting. So how do you deal with well, first of all, how do you deal with the, that fear of rejection, which I, I've certainly uh, felt many times, and um, I would even I would even go as far as to say that I would probably mask it uh, through alcohol. Uh, now I, I quit drinking three years ago, um, but I, you know, going to the pub. I lived in Ireland for a couple of years, and a lot of my friends in college, you know, they are even younger. Uh, you know, we would always gather at bars and, and you know, music venues and places like that. And so I, I feel like the alcohol probably helped. It, it didn't help, of course, it, it, certainly. Right. But tell me, like, are some ta- some tactics well, or some you, some tips about this? Yeah. It sounds like you were using alcohol to self medicate, but yeah, um, yeah. Um, I think that the the there's a variety of tactics to be used. Um, the first one is what I used in this case is I admitted that it's going on. I admitted it out loud that I feel rejected mm. instead of trying to hide it, instead of trying to like put on a happy face and say, hey, I got in, even though inside I feel like I'm like rejected. Yeah. Um, so not masking it, not hiding it, and speaking out loud. Then I f- it helped me find out that other colleagues that got accepted felt similar. Um, so finding people that have similar experiences in life also mitigates some of the challenges. Mm. Um, admitting that um, in thinking in, before the process starts about what will happen if I get no. So when I submitted, I imagined getting the yes, but I also considered what will happen if I get the no. So I kind of planned for the consequence of being rejected a bit. Um, and then it wasn't as shocking or surprising or insulting. Um, but as that works, as long as it doesn't stop you from pressing the submit button. So if imagining the no makes you not follow through, then that's not a strategy for you. Right. Um, and then the last strategy that, um, I, I have to actively remind myself. Oh, sorry about that. That's okay. Um, I have to actively remind myself that um, this is a person that doesn't know me, that is saying no because of X, Y, and Z, and not because of me. Well, they said no because they have so many applications, and I'm excited to go to this conference and listen to all these amazing people. So why am I mad? You know. Mm. So looking at the real components behind. Um, behind what happened. Um, I would add that when the no is related to other people, like um, I was planning a dinner with a bunch of friends and a friend of mine said she couldn't make it. And then she sent like a picture of her on the sofa and I felt very rejected. Like she chose the sofa instead of coming to my event. Mm. Um, and then I kind of confronted her in a, way that wasn't confrontational in a way that I let time pass. I calmed down and I said, Hey, kind of felt a little rejected because you chose the sofa over me. And she wrote, you know, I had food poisoning. I was finally proud that I made it from the bedroom to the sofa. Mm. I should have, um, I should have communicated with you. And then I felt less rejected because really it wasn't about not coming to my event. It was about her being sick. Um, in the past, 
that could have cost us our friendship. I would have just kept that rejection feeling so much for so long that at some point we would have kind of lost our friendship because that would have had a negative effect. I've experienced that firsthand as well, where, uh, where I, I, I would reflect on, on a friendship, let's say, and, or like a newer, younger friendship. And I, you know, somebody I like and, you know, ask out for coffee and we go for coffee and, you know, and have a good time. But then uh, over time, they don't reach out to me. And, and I try a couple of times and, and for whatever reason, it doesn't work. So then after the fact, I think, well, you know, I'm going to try again. But after a while, I start to kind of resent them. I think like, okay, if this person's not going to invest in my, in me as a friend by reaching out to say hello or text me or call me or anything, then forget them. You know, it was, and I have actually sent like a curt kind of text in the past. That was like, hey, I wanted to be friends, but, you know, clearly you're too busy, so don't worry. Um, (laughs) I probably could have handled it better. I think what you're describing is a very ADHD black and white thinking Hmm. because it's so challenging for us to use our executive function, to look through all the possibilities, to plan, to, to not be impulsive. It's so much easier to look at the world very black and white, Um, more like um, a sum of one and zero and nothing in between. Mm. Um, And that comes not because we're naive or childish, as some people think. The black and white thinking is a mechanism and a strategy that helps us process information quicker. And we like processing things quicker. Mm. It helps us make decisions quicker. We have decision fatigue. We have perfectionism. We have impulsivity. And looking at the world black and white helps us use all those tools kind of, but it has negative consequences. Um, the black and white thinking, because it worked so, so many times in the past, we keep on using it. Mm. Um, and when it comes to social interactions, gray is always a winner. So mm. I think that one of the tools I tell my clients is when you're starting a relationship, especially when we're talking about a new network, a new club, a new group, start with the expectation that everyone wants to be your friend, but no one needs to be your friend. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. And then from there, everything could happen in baby small steps. You're not going to go to this meeting and come out with your best new friend right away. Um, older adults are judgier. Um, they keep guard more. They had bad experiences in life and they will not always open as quick as ADHD adults open. So you need to slow your expectations and slow your speed in what you're expecting to be your next best friendship. <laughs> it is so funny because I'm totally guilty of that. Like when I meet somebody new uh, right away, I'm like, you're my best friend. <laughs> kind of like my dog. <laughs> the thing is that the dogs, they walk away and they forget it. They're not, they don't keep it with them. They're like, wait, I, did I meet you before? Oh my God, you smell so good. People um, really need time. Um, yeah. And what what is amazing is our adult ADHD brain kind of speed forward some of this. And if we're trying to build relationships with individuals without ADHD, 
we have to sometimes slow down that speeding forward, or at least give them time to catch up to us. Do you have any thoughts on the, uh, well, certainly the value, but the need for uh, proximity in building relationships with ADHD or, or even without, and I'm, I'm an early adopter in social media and I've been, you know, I've been on all the social networks forever and, and online forever, but I've, I've come to realize that the, the real, it's like your online friendships turn to like real friendships when you finally meet in person and there's a physical touch, a, a handshake, a high five, a hug, um, and it sort of solidifies relationships. Do you have any any thoughts to that versus just digital, just social? So um, I have a million thoughts because ADHD, <laughs> right? Um, so I'll start with the basic. It's very individual. Um, like a lot of things, there are people that um, there's always the stories that people have wrote letters for 10 years and then finally met and it, they worked perfect. And people mm. that that's, you know, pre-internet and others that could build a relationship over letters and actually only became friends with the people they could meet every day in their village. Mm. I think that it's a lot about an individual, but I would add to the fact that when you get a text that says something or a message that sends something like, Oh, congratulations. I'm so proud of you. That is different than when you get the smile, the hug, the excitement that someone shares with you when you see them and they say the same message. That mm -hmm. message has other layers of information when you meet someone live. So the same words without the additional layers um, of information means that you're remembering it less. You're feeling it less. You're getting the less of it. So if I sent you a congratulation message versus even a review recording of congratulation, because mm. then you can hear my voice and see my face, those extra informational points help it stick more to your memory and stick more to your positive feelings. That's why I like sending people video messages. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. And, and you mentioned before that, or, or maybe you didn't mention it. But we talked. Well, we talked briefly before uh, hitting record, and you mentioned that you work with artists with ADHD who are trying to create businesses. And mm -hmm. is that part of that strategy of of you know creating videos, maybe as part of that communication outreach for new clients? Um. So I like working with solo entrepreneurs in general, people that are struggling to get a business plan, get their business on, up, people that um, really need the support and not feel alone in this obstacle of creating a business. Mm. Um, I found that artists with ADHD have an additional struggle, the creativity, the artistic component, plus the ADHD adds... Um, another layer of challenge. And if you're working from home and you're selling your stuff on Etsy or TikTok or Pinster, whatever, um, choose a, choose a social network, you also sometimes have the loneliness that comes from not being in your office, for not leaving, for not going, um, for, for being in that little bubble that is an online world. So this Solar Entrepreneurs with Artists is a group that we, that we work with. Actually, um, we're starting a new group um, in September where other solo entrepreneurs can meet together 
Um, and we do coaching where we try to work on goal-directed behavior. Your goal could be different from another entrepreneur. Like your goal could be planning your social media for the next six months. And someone else's goal could be just making sure they take a shower every day. Hmm. Um, but those goals are very related. And finding others that are that are working on their goals with similar challenges helps. Um, and that's the kind of group that I like working with. Yeah, you pr- probably because you have that accountability partners involved as well, I suppose, right? So it's accountability partners. It's the knowledge of, of different brain hacks. It's the idea that you can talk out loud with other people that will never judge you for, you know, complaining about that. The whole idea that we had an artist that suddenly sold, got, went viral and suddenly sold, uh, he was one that I was working one-on-one with, mm-hmm. that suddenly sold a lot of his product and it actually caused so much stress and it, it made him um, um, be afraid of rejection when he put out his new product. Mm. It caused all these ripple effects that he thought he's the only one experiencing. And by having someone to talk with about, to, to overcome, to build strategies and hacks and also an accountability partner, as you said, um, he has launched his third product now successfully. Oh, that's great. I, I find one of the, I wrote a blog post years ago called uh, The Biggest Business Lie. And and the lie, I, I wrote a book about networking and and I have a website about that too. I'm kind of obsessed with, with networking nicely and doing it the right way. But the biggest business lie is when you meet somebody at a networking event or a conference and they you ask each other, like, you know, how's business? And, and, and if business isn't great, you still say, oh, it's great, never better. And, you know, if you would just have the I was making the case that if you just had the courage to tell the other person, well, actually, things aren't great right now and I'm trying to find a new client, that's a good opportunity for that other person to perhaps provide some value and maybe an introduction, something like that. Yes. Eh. I I think that you brought up something that is um, the I'm blanking out on the word in English when you feel like you're a fraud. um, Imposter imposter syndrome. syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find that a lot of individuals with ADHD um, can be the best of what they're doing and still have the imposter syndrome, especially a higher number if they're also women, um, mm. where what happens is they want to learn one more thing. Okay, I'll just take one more course on this. And because ADHDers are internal learners, mm-hmm. um, you find that... Um, Oh, well, I can't start my business yet because I don't know how to do payroll or I can't start my business because I don't know X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, I will say something. I'm going back to that topic you said before. Um, I'm starting a retreat because I feel that people want the contact with other people. Um, and I know that I'm not the only ADHD coaches starting to offer retreats. And I think that the reason people are starting to offer retreats is because people are lacking opportunities for real, meaningful contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think retreats are—I think they're a great idea. I've been, uh, you know, in my my regular day job, uh, you know, part of 
what I do is work with leaders of organizations. And a lot of those companies have gone hybrid or fully distributed, fully remote. And I'm making the, uh, the argument that they need to bring their teams together you know, right. in-house. Because if you don't have friends or know people at work, you're less likely to stay there. You're going to quit and go somewhere else as soon as the opportunity arises. So, um, so, so there's a lot solar, to be said there. So if you're a solo entrepreneur or mm. um, have your own business or a small business mm. and you also have ADHD, the idea of going away for a weekend or a short set of time and meeting others with the same um, challenges is why I built my retreat. My retreat is going to be about um, working towards your best business plan um, but really it's about making those connections and meeting others that are going through the same challenges. Absolutely. What are some other common challenges you're seeing in, in the business owners, solopreneurs that, that you work with? So the time blindness has a very negative effect yeah. <laughs> or the time magical thinking, as I like to say. Um, the um, problem of boring tasks, mm. um, the motivation challenge. Um, we find that um, being consistently motivated is a challenge I hear a lot with um, individuals with ADHD in the business world. Um, I also think that the fear of rejection and the imposter syndrome always come into effect in, in when you're a business person, but when you don't have others to give you feedback, um, when you're not coming into the office and meeting others, or you don't have a team, even if it's a virtual team, um, then you don't get consistent feedback positive or negative. So the mm. little feedback you do get has very um, meaningful effects. Um, add to that the social media world, um, which I don't think I need to elaborate. I think it's a challenge for any um, solo entrepreneur. Mm. Um, and then the loneliness that you brought up before, I think as a big component, um, the organizational challenges, if it's organizing their space, if it's organizing their brain, if it's organizing their, their ideas, and then the impulsivity. Um, it is very hard to make business decisions if you have the com combined component of impulsivity and also perfectionism, which I find comes a lot together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this all resonates well with me. Uh, so you got your doctorate degree in communication disorders from Northwestern and then your master's degree in learning disabilities from, and I'm, is it Haifa? Haifa? Haifa. Haifa. The University of Haifa in Israel. Um, and I know, you, you know, you've spent a couple of years in, in Montreal and, and I'm from Toronto originally. Um, and we, uh, so tell me a little bit about, and you're, you're in, uh, Sino, right? California now? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, right outside LA. Yep. Yeah. So. Tell me a little bit about how ADHD is interpreted in different countries. I mean, you've got Canada and Israel and, of course, the U.S. So any any thoughts there? Any countries doing it better than others? I think there is a very important cultural component when we look at any mental health, when we look at any um, invisible disability and any neurodiversity. Any of those three things, um, there is a cultural component. Mm. If you are from a culture where, um, I will give an example, like in Israel, it is very common for people to be um, very loud, talk with their hands, close to each other mm. um, very quickly. Um, the speed of everything that's happening is very 
fit for the ADHD brain. Um, I have a friend that lives there and always jokes that, you know, it's a whole nation that's hyperactive. But it's compared to the American or the Canadian culture. Um, so in Canada, if I would speak in the same speed, intensivity, close, standing so close to you as I do when I am in Israel, then you'd feel uncomfortable. Mm. And that is all cultural um cues and agreements and social norms so the ADHD brain um, might do better in those different environments and again it's very individual so if you are the ADHD um, hyperactive you might do very well in that Israel versus the ADHD that's more on the OCD side or anxiety side you might do better in Canada Mm. Um, saying that, that is such a generalization. Yeah. Um, I do think that there are societies that provide more support than others to the invisible disabilities in general. Um, both Canada and Israel are public health. Mm -hmm. Public health has its benefits and its challenges. The benefit is a lot of the treatment, a lot of the support is included in your health. The, um, so you don't have to pay extra. Right. The challenge is that sometimes you might wait a year or two to get service. Um, mm. There is less providers per person. Um, you sometimes don't get to choose your provider. You get the provider assigned to you. Sometimes if you have one another opinion, it's very challenging. So the social medicine versus non-social medicine can really affect how we're treating invisible disabilities. Mm. Um, I will just give the accommodation issue, um, getting accommodations in public schools in Israel in high school is significantly easier than getting accommodations for learning disabilities in ADHD or any mental health than it is in um, Canada or U.S. because it is built in the system, there's very high awareness since evaluations are done through the school systems, since there's um, maybe less privacy, that's the cost of it. Mm. Um, so there's cultural differences that definitely, definitely affect um, the way these different disorders are being treated in the, in the environment they're in. But even in the U.S., um, you could move from city to city or state to state or college to college and lose your accommodations. You could be working at one place where they will say, oh, you want a cubicle be with like some separators because you can get distracted. No problem. When you work in another place and they'll say, nope, this is what you have. No accommodations. Mm. Uh, you can apply to be a firefighter in some states with a severe reading disorder and get your test um, read to you. Um, while in other states, if you can't pass the test without having reading um, accommodations, then you cannot be a firefighter. Hmm. Um, so there is inconsistency within the between the countries and within the country too. If we're talking about older adult diagnosis, the differences are even bigger. Um, I think that there are states where it will be very hard in the United States to receive providers that will evaluate you. Um, that it's it's very hard to get services, it's hard to get medication mm. um, versus other states where it is more available. And I don't even want to add the component of 
um, work environments uh, where you could be moving from an office in New York to an office in Arizona and suddenly um, within the same company and suddenly your accommodations are a challenge. Mm, interesting. Interesting. So I, I'm being mindful of the time here, but I, I did want to uh, ask you, and we touched on it a little bit earlier about organizing for the end of life, you know, that ultimately will come. It comes for all of us. Any tips for folks to sort of prepare for that? Um, so I will say, I'll start with saying I give a ton of workshops on this. And, mm. and, and really the reasons I find that I'm giving these workshops is because it's, it's something challenging. We mm. feel it's something we don't want to talk about as a society, um, I feel that when I meet with people, there are like three things that they're not really happy to talk with me, how much they make their sex life and what they want when they die, how they see their death. And, mm. and um, there's a lot of reasons why people don't talk about those three topics. Um, the topic of end of life is hard to address because in addition to the culture challenge of talking about how we see our end of life it's also because we are time blind and it looks to us that it's going to be very 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 far away and we always have tomorrow to plan it uh-huh. and so um i started getting involved in planning and thinking about these things um after reading a book um it's in case you get hit by a bus um, <laughs> and it made me think about the possibility of what will happen if I leave all these things. What are the consequences of leaving these things for tomorrow? Mm. And I'm not only talking about financial planning, which is the number one planning for retirement and end of life that we need to think about. We need to think about our, how we will live and afford, you know, if we are sick or how we can afford that period of our life, the retirement, that's one component. But the other component is, what are we going to leave behind? Will our kids know how to, or our grandchildren, or our friends know how to access the important information? Will they? Will we be leaving behind that browsers that we don't want other people to see? Mm. Um, well, what is the uh, digital... Um, trail that is going to be left after us. What's going to happen to our stuff? Um, there is another book that during COVID became very popular, and it's the um, Swedish um, End of Life Cleaning, I think is the title. Sorry, I'm not 100% sure about the title. Mm. Um, but it's another book that kind of talks about the stuff in our life and how um, there are ways to keep our stuff but still decide who we want it to go to and there are stuff that we can get rid of this is a great point to evaluate our stuff so planning for the end is not only about making sure you have a financial plan a trust a will but also that you have a plan about who and what's going to happen to your stuff Hmm. Um, if you have any animals, different states have different rules about what happens to your animals if God forbid something happens to you um, so it's very important to add them when you're thinking about the end of life. So kids, animals, plants are things mm-hmm. we need to be thinking about um, when we're thinking about the end of life. But we also need to think about the steps that lead us there. Um, you know, some people, unfortunately, like the book says, get hit by a bus and it's a sudden thing. 
and other people have an opportunity to plan. And in that opportunity to plan, we, we can think about how the funeral might want to be, but also do we want to, if we get really sick, do we want our family to, are we one of those people that want to be home with our family or we really don't want our family to care for us, we would rather be in a nursing home. Sometimes people have strong feelings about those things. And if they're not written somewhere or communicated with someone, those wishes can get lost. Other times people don't have a feeling. So one of the things I like to do with people that participate in my workshop is put some of these questions out there in a form of a questionnaire and have the, let people have the opportunity to put an answer if they have one. And many times we don't. We don't know sometimes when we're in our 40s or 50s or 30s what we want to do. And it's okay not to know. But other times we have a clear opinion and then in that case, we should put it in a way that other people can access it. So just like a, a written, I mean, you can get a, a complicated will and with a lawyer and all that stuff, but even just writing it out and having it somewhere available should, you know, should the bus uh, come flying at you, um, even doing something like that would probably help, you think? Um, I think the will has a different purpose because the will is about money and assets mm. and, and, and um, the will is about how to, to address your, your, um, all the things in your life. And that's also important, but this cheat sheet could be what you would use to go write your will mm. with, with a professional. Um, when you walk into the door with that professional, you need to know not only, um, they put in the will your um, account number sometimes or more if you have a trust you'd put that information in the trust um, but the difference between a will and a trust is one of the things I talk about in my workshops mm. um, but this cheat sheet is uh, that you design is about understanding what you want to do when you come into that room so if you're meeting with with a lawyer and you want to build a will or if you're going and using you know you know these like online services that give you a will for a hundred dollars you need to fill out some information on that paper. So it's important to process that decision making before you impulsively put that information. So what you would do to prepare to the end of life is think through and write down on those things. What Not only who gets X, Y, and Z, but how you want to live towards the end and how you want your end to look like. Mm, yeah, this is helpful. Thank you. Um, uh, Daniela, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you wanted to to mention? I want to be keep an eye on the time for you, but uh, did is there something um, I didn't I failed to ask? Well, I got into the world of coaching um, ADHD because I have ADHD and learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, I have the the double gift of both. Um, I am severely dyslexic, and I used dictation in the time that no one even heard about it. So I was one of the first users of Dragon Naturally Speaking when it was not even called Dragon Naturally Speaking. Mm. Um, it was actually um, very, very early adaptation. So I overcame the, the reading and writing challenges using technology, um, and I think that that is a hack that I used to, to overcome a challenge. And when we talk about um, ADHD and learning disabilities or other invisible, we keep on talking about different ways to overcome um, challenges. 
And as an ADHD coach, I feel like 90% what I'm doing is helping an individual find the way that works for them now. Hmm. Um, and these ways won't always work. Um, and I had to learn to, for instance, to let go of Dragon actually speaking and keep on looking at all these new stuff out there or, the, you know, dictating a short message with a text on my phone, mm -hmm. um, adjusting the use of technology, adjusting the hack to the new needs, to the new life. And I think that many people believe that they don't need help because they figured it out and they get stuck on a strategy that is not no longer working. That's interesting. So almost, it almost sounds like a great idea is to, is to kind of brainstorm the hacks that you use, like write them out and then, you know, refer back to that from time to time to think about what you could improve or, do, you know, cause to your point, yeah, there's, I mean, you fire up Google docs and that's got, you know, that's got a, a, a trans or, uh, uh, what am I trying? Dictation. Yeah, right. Exactly. And dictation and all that stuff. Right. So, so, yeah. So I think that um, one of my favorite questions to ask when someone brings up a challenge is what worked in the past? And then I would say, do you think it would work again? Or do you think you need to consider another strategy? Hmm. Um, I think that sometimes we forget things that worked and we can go back and use those in our bank. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, sometimes we have strategies. Um, I, I like to have an eraser board in um, my shower. I get a lot of good ideas there. I know a lot of people with ADHD, when they're thinking about something else, suddenly have great ideas. Um, and I used to put these ideas there and then never refer to them again. Mm. Um, so this strategy of putting the idea in the shower did get it off my head and I felt like I didn't lose it and I felt relief, but I didn't go back and do anything about it. Now I have this thing that um, once a week I do a 10 minute cleanup in my bathroom mm. where I put things away and I also take a picture of that um, board. It's mm. part of like my cleanup. I just take a picture of it. So those ideas don't get really lost and I can refer to them and I can use it. Um, and I kind of have a record of all these ideas now. Um, I had a partially good strategy, but not, it wasn't fully thoughtful and it wasn't really fully feeling, solving the problem. When I, when, when I went and said, okay, why isn't this working? What is lacking? What is missing? If I evaluated the strategy, it gave me an opportunity to improvement. Mm, yeah, that's clever. That's clever. And they do. Yeah, they make those dry erase boards for the showers. So I, I might have to invest in that, too. That's a great idea. Um, Daniela, this has been awesome. It's just your, your wealth of information. So thank you for sharing your your smarts with us. How can people learn more about you know the workshops and, and all the great work you do? So um, you can find me at my website, ADHDtime.com. Um, also, um, I'm at ADHDtime in Instagram and on Facebook. Um, and I advertise all those and their upcoming events. Excellent. And I will make sure to keep uh, or include links to everything we spoke about here in the show notes so folks can refer back to that. So uh, with that, Daniela, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your, your wisdom today. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Wise Squirrels. 
It has been amazing to share this with you. Best way to show your support for the show. Leave us a review, follow the show, and share it with the people in your life. We drop new episodes every two weeks, so stay tuned for that. Plus, drop by wisequirrels.com or click the link in the podcast description and you'll find a lot of different resources like articles, a, an assessment, a newsletter, lots of good stuff over at wisequirrels.com. So drop by, let me know what you think, and we'll see you next time. Take care.